Hello, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. And I really hope you're doing well. Think about what we've learned in the last 24 to 36 hours about what is going on in our country and how it's playing out in our lives. Did any of us ever think we might live through a time like this? I hope you're doing well. I hope you're taking care of yourself and your family. And I hope you are still getting a sense of connectedness from what we do here each day from 9 to 10 on Detroit Today. We try to come together and talk about things that matter to us. We try to get together and talk about things that matter in our world. And I can't think of a more important time for that to be taking place than right now. We are here for you through all of this. We're not going anywhere. And we want to hear from you through all of this. We want to hear how you're doing. We want to hear how your family's doing. We want to hear how this is changing your life. As always, you can call us at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Or you can go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. This may be the most important time we have together, ever on this show. And speaking of how you're doing and how you're handling this, there's something that occurred to us yesterday that we want to talk about today. And that's the fact that so much of our lives in this country are about individual achievement and autonomy. And in a lot of ways, that extends to the idea of self-reliance. The need for everyone to take care of themselves. But how does that work in the middle of a pandemic, which slams head on into all of those notions? Not just with its disruption of day-to-day routine, but also because it requires us to think about each other and not just ourselves. I've been really interested over the last few days, for instance, to see how people have reacted to this sudden and frightening prospect of the spread of coronavirus. It's not so much what they've done, but why. Are we avoiding crowds or indulging in social distancing because we're worried about our own health or our family's health? Or are we thinking about the big picture? the need to stop the spread of the virus to others, especially people who are part of vulnerable populations. A pandemic like coronavirus requires us to shift our thinking, perhaps in profound ways, from just taking care of ourselves to worrying about humanity. It asks us to lean into our connection and obligation to others, And before it's over, that may happen in ways that we have yet to even contemplate. That's where we want to begin the discussion today, with the question of whether coronavirus might inspire a greater sense of community. And joining us to explore that side of the issue is Megan O'Rourke. She is the editor of the Yale Review and the author of The Long Goodbye. And she just wrote a piece for The Atlantic that says, Our sense of individuality as Americans 
is dangerously in conflict with what may be necessary right now. Megan O'Rourke, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So you say in your article that our individualistic framework is not well suited for a pandemic like the coronavirus. Tell us why you believe that's true. Absolutely. I was struck by the fact um, that so many of us were having a really difficult time shifting in the face of pretty overwhelming evidence that we needed to scale back and stop going to large events. I was struck by how hard it was, even in the face of that evidence, for so many of my colleagues, my friends, myself, to shift gears and say, okay, it's time to stop going. Um, you know, it's, it's time to not take that plane ride. I was supposed to go to a conference in early March that would have been about, I think, about 8,000 people in San Antonio. And because I'm writing a book about chronic illness, and autoimmune diseases and the rise of those diseases in the United States, I had been in touch with a lot of virologists and epidemiologists from back in the beginning of February, watching them get increasingly worried about the spread of this virus across, you know, potentially across the world, and seeing um, their, their very proactive calls for social distancing and self-quarantine. Um, and that had led me to think, you know, I really shouldn't go to this conference. This is a bad idea uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but it was really hard for me to act on that. I felt guilty, like I was somehow doing the wrong thing and not being tough enough, right? And I should just muscle through it and get on the airplane. And it, it's, it's a very strange shift that we have to make in our minds from a, a, a way we've been you know, acculturated to think in America, which is that you kind of tough it out, um, which usually means going on, doing the thing, even if you, it's hard to do. But strangely, the hard thing to do here, I think, is to do less mm. and to be quieter and to stay home. That's quite a hard shift for so many Americans, I think. And and that's baked, as I was saying in the open, into the culture in ways that are really profound. I mean, the, the, the very idea of life in this country is sort of congealed around the idea of individual action and individual responsibility. I mean, we use it almost as uh, a flag that we like to fly to sort of say who we are. And something like this, which which really changes the way that we have to think about the way we interact with, with other people, it just doesn't really fit into the way we, we think of ourselves. I mean, it, it, it is a fundamental, I guess, conflict, at com- fundamental conflict with, uh, with who we think we are. Absolutely. And I mean, you see that idea of American individualism, you know, has been richly present in American thought and literature, you know, for for a long time. You go back to Emerson's self-reliance, right? Um, Now we have it, you know, running through our culture and everything from, you know, how extremely personalized our coffee orders at Starbucks can be or our salad choices, you know, at lunch can be that the, you know, the personalized salad to the fact that we have a weak social safety net and the larger conversation we're having in this, you know, year of a presidential election about the, you know, the, the virtues or lack of virtues of a universal health care system. Um, and, you know, this is a country that does not provide health care to all its citizens, unlike many countries. And, you know, that individualism goes from, you know, as I'm saying, just the the daily small decisions we make to our very social structure. Mm -hmm. And that's coming 
you know, that is what is going to become ever more apparent to Americans. I think the risks of that is what is coming, becoming ever more apparent to us as we face a pandemic that really requires us to all work together and to support one another because um, anyone in our, coronavi- in our community who has coronavirus means that everyone in our community can have coronavirus. Yeah. As you said, you're working on a book about infectious disease. Uh, can you talk about this term that we keep hearing now, flattening the curve, and why that's so important and how that fits into this idea of self-reliance versus the idea of doing what you're doing on behalf of the broader community? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, the book I'm working on is about chronic illness. Uh, not that's right. Disease, <laughs> okay, but, sorry. But along the way, I've learned a few things. There's a chapter about how, ironically, there's a chapter about how, um, you know, infectious disease used to be what killed most Americans, and now it's actually chronic diseases. Hmm. So we're very unused to thinking about the problem of infectious disease. It's really not been at the forefront of Americans' minds for about 100 years. Um, so... Flattening the curve is an epidemiologist term for the, the work that we need to do together as a as a nation and as smaller communities to change the natural the, the typical progression of an infectious outbreak, which, as you can imagine, starts with a few small cases and then builds very quickly and exponentially. Right? It doesn't go like one case to two cases to three cases. It doubles typically. And in this pandemic, we're seeing that I think there's slightly more than each individual seems to infect slightly more than two people. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at an exponential curve that goes from not that many cases in a community to a lot of cases in a community pretty quickly, right? That's what we're seeing in Italy. That's what we saw in Wuhan. So what the particular problem that that poses for this infectious disease and for America right now is that American hospitals do not have enough ICU beds to take care of all of the people who would get sick if that curve peaks really quickly, like it typically would, without any measures and interventions. Mm -hmm. So what um, hospitalists and doctors and epidemiologists are recommending is that we take very proactive social distancing and quarantine measures before the virus is everywhere in your community. And this is the key tricky part. It sort of requires acting before you think you need to um, in order to flatten that curve out so that rather than this exponential peak that happens all at once and will overwhelm and strain the hospital system, that peak happens much more slowly over a lot of time. And you'll see that there's a chart going around where you can see that what we want to get to is the point where that peak never goes above the, the, the capacity of the healthcare system, that we never have more people flooding the ICU than the ICU can handle. Um, the reason this is particularly important with this novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is that the data coming to us from China shows us that in situations where that curve is not flattened, that what they call the case fatality rate, the number of people who die as a result of contracting the virus, is much higher than it is if you flatten the curve. It was something like over 5% in Wuhan, whereas outside of Wuhan, it was something closer to 0.7%. It's important to remember these are really um, shifting percentages. It's a moving target, so we're still bearing down on what the precise numbers are, but that's a pretty accurate reflection of at least a significant difference. And the reason for that difference was that there are a really large number of cases um, 
or at least, you know, a reasonably large number of cases who may need intervention from a hospital. They may need oxygen. They may need intubation. And when they get it, they survive. But mm-hmm. when they don't get it, some people are dying. So in Wuhan, I think you had between 14 and 20% of people. That could be wrong. But in a couple of places that we've looked at, we've seen about 14 to 20% needing hospital hospitalization and needing interventions. And then a number of those people do pretty well if they get those interventions. But if they don't, they may die. Mm. So, you know, flattening the curve is not an abstract reality. We have really good data that shows us if we flatten the curve, a lot more people will do much better with this virus, that we will really be able to keep the, the numbers um, of, of, more, you know, of, of case fatalities down. Mm. So, so I want to get to listeners really soon in this conversation. But before we do, I want to have you talk just a little about the, I guess, the extreme iteration of what we're talking about here in terms of people resisting the idea of thinking about how their behavior during this this pandemic might affect other people. You, you still have a lot of people who are saying this is some sort of hoax. And right. you had the president of the United States use that word right. with regard to, to coronavirus just, just a, a few weeks ago. And you also have people um, who who are who are saying that this is about politics in some way. I mean, the president was one of the people who who said that as well, or who say that this is about panicking. That people who are taking these measures are over overreacting. I mean, that that seems again an extreme iteration of this sense of individuality or self-reliance that is even more dangerous than the sort of just Americanism that that, that lies at the bottom of that. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I would just add that I I think this is changing this week, but I also see a lot of people who aren't even that extreme, but, you know, they're busy, they're taking care of their children, they're working, and, you know, they heard about coronavirus in January or February and got a little worried, but the messaging was, look, right now the flu is much more of a risk, which it was at the time. And so they still have in their minds, you know what, I don't really need to worry about this yet. And, you know, yes, the media often overhypes things. So they just haven't clicked in yet, right? So we have the extreme versions. And then I think there's a lot of Americans who still are just starting to kind of click in um, to what's happening, partly because it's happening very fast. Mm -hmm. So that's right. I think, you know, look, this is a global pandemic, so anyone who is resisting the idea that um, we need to think about it, all they need to do is look at international newspapers to see how real it is. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, I think there are two things at work. One is, or three things. One is this American individualism, um, which is that we don't really, when we're evaluating risk, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people talking about, well, I'm not at risk, so I don't, I'm going to go to Florida, or I'm going to go surfing, or I'm going to do whatever. Well, that's not really the way to think about this illness, right? You may not be at risk, but you could be a vector for disease that causes a lot of other people to die. You know, your, your brother-in-law who has diabetes, your grandmother who's over 70, um, you know, these are the at-risk categories, people over 70 and 80 in particular, um, you know, people with chronic conditions such as diabetes or hypertension. There are a lot of Americans in, who have diabetes, a lot of Americans with heart disease. Those people are at risk. And so it's, 
you know, absolutely requires a shift from thinking about ourselves to thinking about the way in which our body is in relationship with other bodies, which is just not something we're used to doing. The other thing at work, I think, is, you know, we all have a healthy amount of denial, right? That's how we get through the day. And this hasn't happened in, you know, 100 years. This is really hard to wrap our minds around. And one thing I see at work is, you know, good old American exceptionalism. We're different. So we look at Italy and we think, well, that's not going to happen here. And, you know, in our lifetime, it hasn't. So it's really hard to shift to thinking, oh, my God, that could happen here. And I think what the, you know, healthcare workers and people like Dr. Anthony Fauci are asking us to do is to say, hang on a second, even though this is unimaginable, it, it, it really could happen here. Look at the math. It's, it's already starting to happen. And New Rochelle, the hospital in New York, is, is overwhelmed. So it's, it requires a very, very difficult um, mindset, which is that we have to kind of project forward in time to when it's possible that, you know, there are many, many cases of coronavirus in our communities and hospitals are overwhelmed. And projecting forward like that can feel like a form of panic or anxiety. In this case, it really just is prudence. We don't know the true scope of the disease. We need to act prudently. The worst that might happen um, at this point, since we know there's a lot of community spread, is that we're slightly overly prudent and we slow that down much more quickly than we imagine we can. Um, you know, obviously there are very real economic dis- you know, issues here and issues about school closures, very complicated decisions to make. But we know we have to slow that, um, you know, we have to flatten that curve. And it does require realizing that this is about prudence and not panic at this point. Okay, let's get to listeners here. Lots of folks calling to talk about how they are experiencing all of these things uh, with coronavirus. Let's start with Christine and Dearborn. Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Yeah, I thought I would call today and just I kind of express what's going on in my world. I um, I sing for a living for assisted living centers, hmm. and they've canceled pretty much all my work for the month. And, you know, like your author was talking about, I have high respect for flattening the curve, and we don't know really, you know, we don't know the scope yet of this. So it's really scary to me to know that my living can just be kind of wiped away. Yeah. Um, with the prudency that's taking place. I respect it, but that's how it's affecting me. It's pretty scary. So, Christine, what will you do if you're not able to work for an extended period of time? Well, you know, that's a very good question. I'm just looking at alternatives, different jobs, different things I could do instead of this for the time being. Hmm. And luckily, you know, I do have somebody at my home who is still working and I have a roof over my head. Mm. However, I'm in the process of buying a new home mm. right now as we speak. It wow. could not be a worse time for yeah, that. Yeah, really? <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. So Christ- there's a lot uh, a lot going on and a lot to question as we don't, you know, really know how long this is going to go on right. and how this is going to affect people yeah. like myself. Christine, I really appreciate uh, the call and you're sharing your story and I appreciate what you're doing, right? This this idea of you know understanding that that uh, things are going to have to look different, and that may affect us in ways that 
Uh, we don't want it to, but that it's necessary because of uh, because of the danger here from this uh, from this disease. Thanks very much again for the call and uh, sharing your experience. Let's go to Aaron in Ferndale. Aaron, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad you're focusing on community a lot today. We. Our parents are four and six-year-olds, so this morning I woke up and freaked out, like probably most parents did. Um, because schools so are closed, right? Yeah, because yeah. schools are closed. Yeah. Like, a range of emotions, and then, you know, really settled on uh, being fortunate and grateful that myself and my husband, uh, I actually work from home full-time, but he's able to work from home. And we are going to be disrupted um, significantly, but it's going to, you know, we're going to get through it. And we are a lot more flexible than a lot of other families. And, you know, I really worry about other people in our community, like kids who, you know, need food from school and parents who have work in the service industry. And they can't, you know, they can't take off work and they can't afford child care for three weeks. And um, I've been heartened to see the community already, even last night, starting to come together and say, like, you know, how do we get food to kids who need it? How do we, um, you know, set up babysitting and stuff like that? So I think that it's going to be really important to um, see how we can support each other and be a village when we can't physically be together as a community. Yeah. No, that's a really that's a really artful way of of talking about that, how we can sort of uh, support each other as a community when we cannot be together, literally cannot be physically in the same space uh, with each other. Aaron, thanks very much for the call uh, and those thoughts. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about what community means during the coronavirus spread and pandemic. And we want to continue to hear from you. Call and tell us what is going on in your world today and how you're grappling with this, how you're grappling with the idea that you may have to do things on behalf of other people, not just yourself and your family. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. One oh one nine WDET, Detroit's NPR station, celebrating seventy years of radio in Detroit. This is Detroit Today on one oh one nine WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Uh, my guest is Megan O'Rourke. She's editor of the Yale Review and author of The Long Goodbye. She's written an article in The Atlantic about the ways in which a pandemic like the coronavirus really bumps up against our notions of individuality in this country and asks something different of us when we think about what we do and why we do it. Uh, We want to hear from you as well during this crisis uh, about what's going on in your world, how this is affecting you and the decisions that you're making. Uh, Are you making those decisions based on what you think is best for you and your family? But are you also making decisions based on what you think needs to be done to stop the spread 
of this disease. As always, uh, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to work those into the conversation. Before we get back to listeners, Megan, I want to I follow up on uh, a Twitter comment that we have from Rick who says, how about skip a payment program from our banks? It would help everyone and could be tacked on the back of the loan. Um, this idea of acting on behalf of community as individuals, I think, is important. That's what we've been talking about. But what Rick is raising there is, I think, a broader question about how we might ask the corporate community to act during uh, a crisis like this. That that the idea of <clears throat> of profit, the idea of keeping your business going is always part of American society and certainly the bedrock of our economy. But during a time like this, should businesses be thinking not just about themselves and their well-being, but the broader sense of what's going on in people's lives? Financial stresses are going to go off the charts in a very short period of time if people can't get to work, if they can't get their kids to school. Uh, should we be asking banks and corporations to play their part? I mean, I absolutely think so. And I, I think that, you know, one of the things I talk about in the piece is that this question of this need for community-mindedness exposes not just how we may need to make individual shifts in our own kind of mindset about how do we go about our days, but it really is a reckoning with a lot of things about American life because in in America you know, the burden of this pandemic is going to fall unduly on certain parts of our population, such as your caller who called in earlier, who, you know, um, I think she said she sings at assisted living homes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, absolutely, the way I have been thinking about this is, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, what I would try to do would be to redistribute burden a little bit, right? And so to whatever degree that companies and corporations can you know, stay afloat while helping individuals absolutely have to, because otherwise we're just going to see massive, massive financial problems um, on top of, you know, the health and logistical and infrastructure problems that we have um, already. And, you know, I'm really concerned about how many people in our economy, you know, are part of the gig economy or don't have health care or don't have paid sick days or could see their their work just disappear, as your caller was talking about. And, you know, it feels like it shouldn't be all on them to um, do their part and be kind of, in a sense, you know, punished for it, right? We have to figure out a way together um, as individuals who might, you know, maybe we can take small actions like going to our food banks or, you know, helping organize babysitting when schools are closed. And then, you know, a lot of moms in my neighborhood are doing that. Uh, our schools got closed yesterday. Um, to corporations for giving mortgage payments or tacking them on at the end and, and so forth, to delaying the income tax deadline, which I think has been floated, to, you know, government having to step in and, and make some changes here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to Diane in Rochester. Diane, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. The reason why I'm calling is because I am one of those people that are in a precarious position when it comes to work. I'm a substitute teacher. Mm. It is my full-time position. Mm. And because of what's going on now, I no longer have work. I have five districts I service, and I can no longer work. They're all closed, right? Yes. 
outside of the fact that because I'm a substitute teacher and within the last 10 years or so, they made us independent contractors devoid of having any protections with the different Mm -hmm. districts, I pretty much have no form of backup in terms of uh, I can't claim unemployment. I have no services. Wow. Now, I'm fortunate to where I'm going to be getting out of here probably next tomorrow, actually flying out of here and going to family that lives down south, and I'll be fine because I'll be able to be fed. But I am so concerned about my fellow workers. Yeah. I'm very grateful they closed the schools because mm-hmm. of the severity of the sickness, but that doesn't mean that I'm not worried about my fellow workers that I know are just as dependent on the job as I am. And I've yet to hear anything from uh, anything substantial anyway from the state or even as far as the government to address my concerns. And I don't mean my and me, but my mm-hmm. kind of concerns for the people that work like right. I do. Uh, Diane, uh, I think one of the things that that your your call here raises is the way in which work has changed for so many people, uh, and and the uncertainty that that attends work all of the time now uh, that that makes it more precarious, and so that something like this has a much more profound effect on somebody in your position than it would have. Uh, you know, five or, or, or 10 or certainly 20 or 30 uh, years ago. Uh, Megan O'Rourke, talk about that that level of vulnerability, people who don't have certain income, uh, certain the certainty of income, and how, uh, how something like the, a pandemic just could cause massive, massive disruption uh, for these people in their lives. I mean, I think your caller is, is, you know, putting her finger on exactly what the crisis here is, which is that we know for, you know, the greater good of people's survival that we need to do things like stop congregating in large groups and, you know, stop going to events of more than 100 people or 500 people. But I think a really difficult consequence of that is that because our, you know, American individualism means we have this society that, you know, where a lot of people do not have the kinds of protections that would help them get through a period of real disruption um, like this. You know, again, I'm really concerned, like your caller, about the undue burden on a lot of workers. And what I wish we were seeing was a little bit more kind of you know, preparation from our government and from companies that this is happening, this disruption is here. Um, How do we help everyone get through this and how do we help people do the right thing? So, you know, there's evidence that in schools you can also meet in smaller groups and not necessarily in large groups and, you know, could, could, you know, there's obviously a need now for child care for elementary school and younger age children, for parents who are essential workers are going to have to keep going to hospitals. You know, this is where we have to get creative. Could we set up, you know, would substitute teachers or teachers who want to keep working volunteer to be in small groups with kids, right? Because that would solve a lot of social problems. Like there has to be a way for us to very quickly and nimbly try to solve some of these problems. It's not going to be easy, but it is one of the things that, um, other nations who've, you know, battled this successfully were able to do, which is to kind of ask people to shift work a little bit. Um, And, you know, those who wanted to were able to step in and help in other ways and get paid. So, you know, this is is just a 
huge, huge problem that has to get thought about and solved by companies, by the mm-hmm. government, by local government, by federal government. And like your caller, I'm really, really concerned about, you know, we're asking people to do the right thing, but what if they're put in a position where they're forced not to work and they don't have the means to get by during this, what could be a long period of yeah. time? Yeah, that's the fear I think everyone has to have is about the length of yeah. time this this could yeah. all this could all disrupt us. Right, um, exactly. Let's go to Conrad in Tampa. Conrad, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Hey, how are you? I, uh, oh, I'm a spinal cord injured guy with a chronic wound, and, and the concept that I feel hasn't been discussed is our own uh, immortality. Mm. People are denying that they're going to die. And the other thing is, I didn't tell it, but I just thought, isn't this socialism? What everyone's doing in the Congress, providing stuff for people, isn't that socialism? Mm, well, I don't know. That's an interesting question, Conrad. But I, but I'm, I, I'm really interested in in where you started uh, your call here with this idea of mortality. Uh, uh, Megan O'Rourke, in in your article, you say to be ill is to know our interconnectedness. Um, and I think that, that that gets a little toward what Conrad is talking about here. Um, this idea of fear of mortality, fear of vulnerability. Uh, explain what you meant by that in the article and how your own experience plays into that. Yeah. Well, you know, I myself got very sick for a number of years, most acutely for two years in around 2012 to 2014, and, and took a long time for the medical system to kind of be able to treat me and figure out what was wrong with me. So during that period, I really did have this profound experience of kind of, again, how interconnected we all are. We think of the body as being a unit of one, but there's so much evidence that shows us that, you know, having an empathetic doctor leads to better outcomes, even for things like diabetes, which you would think are kind of like fixed and not really responsive to emotions. Um, But in my last book, The Long Goodbye, which is an account of mourning for my mother, and it's sort of a a way of thinking about grieving in America, I, I do talk a lot about exactly what Conrad is talking about, which is that we have a real kind of avoidance of talking about mortality, of talking about grief. And I think that's at play here. I think we're already grieving, right? We're, we've lost, there's a loss happening for all of us. Um, you know, and it's also an anticipated loss, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the loss has happened and some hasn't happened. And we're kind of anticipating this change. And it's, it's very, very hard. Um, to the second point, I just would say two things about socialism. One, I find it interesting that Americans are more worried about socialism than you know, about uh, millions of Americans potentially dying through a lack of kind of concerted collective action. So mm-hmm. that is just interesting. Um, but second, I don't think it is socialism, right? We, we have governments have a flexible range, and the American government is actually set up to be very flexible in the range of its ability to, you know, have the federal government respond to things, you know, from less responsive to more responsive. And in American history, there is a history during times of pandemic and crisis of the federal government stepping in and helping the society survive in the most intact way possible. That does not mean this is socialism. It is a moment when, in fact, kind of democratic liberalism steps in to help its citizens get through where it needs to you know, what they need in order to survive intact and not, you know, lose their homes, lose their jobs. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, it's a flexibility that is built into our government. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, 
I think this is a little far afield of what we've been talking about, but this idea of uh, the way in which we deal with healthcare in this country and how much it contrasts with other Western democracies, I think, is going to come into focus pretty quickly uh, as as we get into this. I mean, this idea that somehow uh, it would cost us more to do it differently, uh, I think, is going to be proven pretty pretty uh, naive uh, in a in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Megan O'Rourke, editor of the Yale Review, author of The Long Goodbye, and author of an article in The Atlantic about how the coronavirus spread may change our sense of individuality. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you. Oh, I really, really appreciate being able to talk with you all. Good luck to everybody. Yes. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Up next, cultural institutions all over our region are canceling performances and events to help slow the spread of the coronavirus. I'm going to talk with the leaders from the DSO and the Michigan Opera Theater about why they made that decision and how big a hit they are going to take. Stay with us on Detroit Today.